0: The desire of Titus Women is to invite women around the world to know Jesus as their Savior, Center, and Source. May God guide and encourage you through this message. The scripture that I want to use tonight is found in the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. It's chapter 1, reading from verse 9 of chapter 1. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, I was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, Write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like brass, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, "Do not be afraid. I." am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and of hell. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this, The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Tonight I want us to turn our attention to tomorrow, because uh, we leave and the 1990, the centennial encampment is over, and we go back to pick up the responsibilities that God has for us We go back to the places where God wants to show his hand on our behalf for us. As we look at the future, all of us find some apprehension within us. I'm sure that there are none of us who have not been touched and are not touched by that. We just wonder what the days ahead hold for us. We'd love to know what's out there, and we'd love to know when the what's going to take place. But it isn't given to you and to me to be able to see into the future, except that we are able to see not the what that is in our future or the when that will occur, but to us as Christians it is given for us to know the who, the person who is to be our future. You will remember that Jesus said, I am the way. We think of the way in terms of steps and vocation and plans and fulfillment of those plans. But it's significant to me that when Jesus spoke about the way, he was not speaking about a life to be lived out, but he was speaking about a person, he was speaking about himself. Now, that's the beauty about the book of Revelation for me. Because here, as nowhere else in the Scripture, we get a picture of the greatness of our Lord. There is a very real sense in which in the Gospels we see the eternal Son of God, the gentle Jesus, meek and mild, we find him, in a sense, under wraps. And the picture of the New Testament of Jesus is never complete until you have added to the book of Revelation, or you have added to the four Gospels, this closing book of the sacred canon. Now, the book of Revelation has never been an easy book for me, and I find there are a lot of other people like me that do not know quite what to do with it. You know, I think there are some reasons, and if we understand those reasons, we will find ourselves more comfortable with it. One of them is it's apocalyptic literature. It is literature of vision, It is literature of symbol. You see, the one who told us about it saw things that he could not describe. And as we said the other day, it was his business to describe eternal things in temporal terms. And temporal buckets are not big enough to hold eternal truth. And so when we speak about that future and we speak about the God of that future, it is a literary genre that is not like the Atlanta Journal or like the usual reading material that is so factual and so prosaic so much a part of our life. Now, another reason I think we have problems with it is because of the subject matter. You see, the final conflict, the final result of all of human history will be the result of the conflict of good and evil, of Satan and of Christ. And in this book, there is a sense in which the lid is taken off of hell, and we see the devil and his angels, we see the beast and the false prophet. We see these more clearly here than anywhere else in the Scripture. And you know, you and I have trouble handling the demonic. Stick with me for a moment and let me see if I can make clear what I want to say. One of the most significant writers of the 20th century playwrights was a lady in England by the name of Dorothy Sayers. She became a Christian and uh, was a, a serious, significant Christian thinker. She said, Now, I've spent much of my life as a playwright, and I've wanted to write on significant religious issues. But she said, I have found that if a playwright makes the devil one of his characters in his play, or in her play, the playwright then has an almost insoluble problem. Do you know what it is? It's to keep the devil from becoming the hero of the play. Because when you put the devil against the good... Because of the fallenness of most of our imagination, let me change that most to all of our imaginations, there is something that is more dramatic to us about pure evil than pure good. Malcolm Muggeridge described it this way. He said, it's very difficult to write a Christian novel that is interesting. And you think about the literature of The Western world, and you'll know that uh, there haven't been a great many really gripping Christian novels. Malcolm Ugridge says the reason is very clear. Listen, he says good is so much better in reality than it is in imagination that when you move into the novel where you're in an imaginary world, good has problems. But he said, evil is so much better in imagination than it is in reality, that when it comes to the imaginary world, evil always has an advantage. And you know, I think it's true. All I have to do is think about uh, how the book of Revelation has been treated across the years. You catch a typical person out on the street, typical church member, and say, what's the book of Revelation about? And they'll say it's about the Antichrist. When the reality is, the name is the revelation, not of the Antichrist, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, I think sometimes that one of the reasons we do not read it is because we're too marginal to the real battle that is going on in our society. One of the things I have noticed in the history of the Church is that there are generations and there are places where the book of Revelation becomes very important. Germany under Adolf Hitler was one of those places. Martin Niemöller said that when Nazism was sweeping Germany and sweeping Europe, And it looked as if those stormtroopers were going to win out over everybody and the church was going to be destroyed, true believers found themselves reading again and again, turning to the book of Revelation for encouragement and for hope. I had a person who knew China well to say that under Mao, one of the most popular books in the Bible to the Chinese, suffering persecution under Mao in China, was the book of Revelation. I remember that Francis Asbury, when he was tramping over this country trying to win this country for Christ, over a long period of his ministry, every Sunday morning he read the book of Revelation from beginning to end. Because, you see, here is where we find out about the ultimate end of the conflict that is ours. And if more of us were more deeply involved in God's battle in our day we'd find ourselves more comfortable with it. But it really is a magnificent book, and that's why I want to turn to it tonight. It tells us about how things are going to come out. Now, there are a lot of us that get a little uneasy about thinking about the future. We'd just rather sort of keep a veil over that. I had an old prophet, Princeton, German scholar by the name of Otto Pieper, New Testament scholar who had come out of the Second World War a man who had been a liberal and came to rock-solid faith in Christ. He was speaking to a group of Presbyterian clergymen one day, and after he had finished, one of the younger clergymen stood and said, Now, Dr. Pieper, great internationally known scholar like you, you really don't believe in the Second Coming, do you? And he looked back and tersely said, Well, he started it all, I guess he'll wind it up. I have no problem believing that. And that's what this is about. It is to let us know that he is the one who will reign. He is the one who is the ultimate one in every life, and he will be the final page of human history. We may think we're through with him. We may think we're a bit like Caiaphas or Herod or Pilate on Good Friday evening. I am sure all three of them thought they would sleep better Friday evening, having been done with him. And they could say, Jesus is now a part of the past. He's over with. We've got him buried. That's the end. Well, let me say, if you think you're through with Jesus, you're in the same shape as Caiaphas and Herod and Pilate. I've occasionally wished I could have been there on Easter Sunday morning when Jesus came out of the tomb and say, Jesus, let's make a few calls this morning. It would have been interesting to go visit old Caiaphas or Herod, Or Pilate, just walk into their bedrooms and say, uh, Pilate, what do you think about this? Here he is. Uh, Now, that didn't happen. Jesus didn't do it that way. But do you know there will be a day in Caiaphas' future when he will do that? And there will be a day in Pilate's future and a day in Herod's future and a day in mine and a day in yours. Because he's the beginning and he is the end. And when he says he's the beginning, that's the beginning of all that is. And when it says he is the end, that is the end of all that is. Every individual life, every institution's final destiny, every movement in human history, he is the end of it all. He will reign. Now, there are four things I notice about Jesus, the picture that is given of him in the book of Revelation. Let me very quickly move through them, but they are beautiful to me and they are encouraging. One of them is, the first, very clear, he is the sovereign Lord of all in the book. He is without rival or competitor. There is no competition for him here. He reigns. You see it in a number of ways. Let me mention ways in which it is obvious to me. One of them is his position. If you know the book of Revelation, you will remember that in the fourth chapter, John is lifted up and the heaven opens and he looks in and he sees the very throne of God. Around that throne are the four living creatures and then around them are the twenty-four elders falling down on their faces and casting their crowns down before the throne of the living God. You will remember that... uh, He sees one who has a book sealed with seven seals, and in that book is his future, and he says, who is worthy to open the book and let us know what the what and the when is in our future? And there was no one in heaven, and there was no one in earth, and there was no one under the earth that was worthy to break the seals on the future, on your future and on mine. And so John weeps some apostolic tears, and an angel says to him, Don't weep, weep, there's one worthy. And he turns and looks and sees, standing in the midst of the eternal throne of God, the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. I remember the first time I really saw that. I'm sure some of my thoughts sometimes are not maybe as reverent or as reverently expressed as they ought to be. But when I saw that and realized that there in the middle of the throne of God stands the Lamb of God, I thought Mary's baby has come a long ways from Nazareth. But he has. He is the ultimate reigning one. You see it in the position. You will find it uh, in the titles that are used in the book of Revelation. As we said, he's the first and the last. He's the one who came from the dead. He's the one who has the sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. He is the one whose eyes are like fire and whose feet are like burning brass. He's the one who is holy and true. He has the key of David. He is the one who opens and no man can shut, and he shuts and no man can open. He is the faithful and true witness the King of kings and Lord of lords, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. If you look at those first three chapters, or chapters two and three, you will remember that they have in them seven letters written to the seven churches that were in Asia. And in each letter, each letter begins with a title of Jesus. Some of those that I read are predominantly taken from the introductions to those letters. But it's interesting, the last letter has what is my favorite title for Jesus in this book. It says, He is the Amen, and I like that. You know, uh, that was my first favorite religious word, because when I went to church, that's what I waited for. I think that's the reason I never sang in the choir and never got musical, because I felt the choir had cheated me with its sevenfold amen. Because there's something about an amen that you shouldn't have to repeat it. Because any boy knows that amen means, ought to mean, boys, it's over with, you can go home now. And he's the one who is the amen, and it'll be spoken once, and when he speaks, that will be it. Now, you see it in not only the titles, but let me talk as an old teacher for a moment. You see it in the grammar of the book of Revelation. Now, it's been a long time since most of you had a grammar class, and you may have forgotten the difference between the active voice and the passive voice. But it's significant to me that the book of Revelation, I think, has more passive constructions than any book in the Bible. Most writing teachers will tell you you want to stay away from the passives because they're a weak way of expressing things. You want something active and hard-hitting. You know, an active voice is where the subject acts on the object. The boy hit the ball. And the passive turns it around where the subject is acted on by the object. The boy was hit by the ball. I dare you to go through the book of Revelation and check the voices. You will find that all of the powers in the book of Revelation, no matter where they are exercised, are given powers and are not self-originating by anybody in the book of Revelation except the ones who sit in that throne that John saw, where the Lamb stands in the midst of the throne. Do you remember those four horsemen of the Apocalypse? the white one, the black one, and the red one, and the pale one, going out conquering and to conquer. If you will look at those four, you will find that when it says, to the one that came out on the white horse, he was given a crown, he was given a crown and was given the power to conquer, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. You will find that each one of those horsemen was given whatever power he had. So the instruments of judgment in life and in human history are given their power. They do not have it in themselves. But what I love better than that is even the power of Satan and his minions in the book of Revelation is in the passive voice. And you will find that the devil and his angels are permitted, is the language used, because Jesus. Reigns. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about the uncertainty of tomorrow, I'm glad that he is without rival or competitor. He reigns, he is sovereign and in control. Now, the second thing is, he's the one who breaks those seals on that seven-sealed book, Your Future in Mine. The text says he's the only one worthy of that. That means that everything new that occurs in human history, He's the one who breaks the seal and let it emerge. Whether it's that new baby in your house, or your child moving into puberty, or into teens, or your kid going to college, or a college kid facing the future and that job opportunity opens up or doesn't open up, or no matter what it is, Wherever there is an opening, a new opening, he is the one who opens your future and mine. He is sovereign. And we can take comfort in that. Now, the third thing is, it's very clear, we may not like this, but the book of Revelation makes it clear that he is the righteous, holy judge. We will not be judged by anybody else. We will not be judged by our wives or our husbands. We will not be judged by our fellow church members or our neighbors. We will not be judged by the world. We will be judged by him. He is the one who sits on the throne. When he came the first time, we disposed of him, but he will dispose of us when we appear before him. Now, what I love is that the book of Revelation is very clear as to what the standard is. If you will turn in the book of Revelation, you will find that the standard is given to us. Let me read for you uh, just uh, three verses here. In the 21st chapter, the next to the last chapter, where he has said, It is done, it is over. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He says, To him who is thirsty I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life, He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Now, let me tell you what intrigues me about that. Do you know what you have in that passage? You have a careful, simple, direct recapitulation of the moral law and the biblical standards that are found in the Pentateuch, that are given to us in Exodus at Sinai, and in the legislation that comes out of that. I'll never forget being in a pastor's conference once. There were three of us there. I'm not, I do know how I got there. I got a telephone call from the guy who was directing it. He said, we have two uh, fellows who really don't represent anything historically traditional or orthodox, and we need one evangelical in the crowd. And so he said, we tried to get Paul Reese and couldn't get him, and we don't know who you are, but somebody gave us your name, would you come and be the third speaker? Now, that's that's an encouraging way to begin a, a relationship, so I found myself lecturing in alternate terms with a very strong, impressive, liberal existentialist, and uh, Joseph Fletcher. If you remember Joseph Fletcher from 15 or 20 years ago, he was one of the most popular speakers in this country, and he was the father, one of the fathers of what was called the numerality. And so uh, he spoke at six, and I spoke at seven. It was interesting. I sat on the front row so that he'd know I was there, and uh, when I was not speaking and he was not speaking, I tried to sit side of him. It's interesting. He started out pretty caustic. Before the, before the sessions were over with, he'd sort of lost his teeth. It's interesting how hard it is to chew anybody up who sits side of you and who will smile at you occasionally. But I remember hearing him say to a gang of Protestant preachers, he said, you know, today's vice is tomorrow's virtue, and today's virtue is tomorrow's vice, because all moral values change, and there are no absolutes, and there is no way that you can find what is true today and what is right today, and expect it to be true and right tomorrow. Therefore, every person must find out for himself what he should do. And there is no universal moral law. And We have a lot of people who believe that today. We have a lot of people in educational circles who believe that today. In fact, the basic philosophy of most of the United States government's legislation is based on that. The thing I notice is that if you will read the first section of the Bible and the last section, you will find the moral law hasn't changed. And the last section does not reflect, the book of Revelation does not reflect just the beliefs of the Church in the first century. What it reflects is the beliefs of the sovereign God whom every man will meet and to whom every person will give an account. Let me remind you what he says about that uh, eternal city. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And in the final chapter of the Bible, he says... Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city of God, but on the outside are the dogs, maybe the homosexual practitioners, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. And what you've got again is a recapitulation of the moral law that was given to Moses at Sinai. Young lady, young mother said to me the other day, she said, Some of my friends are concerned about the standards we have for our children and they say, I'm a legalist. I said, Well every Christian is a legalist. And she eyes went wide and she stared for a few moments. I said, Well, biblically, every believer is a legalist. I said, you'll remember when God saved his people out of Egypt, the first place he took them was to Mount Sinai, and the first thing he gave them was the moral law. And if you'll turn to the first book in the New Testament, you'll find the first thing that Jesus gave in the book of Matthew is the counterpart to that in the Sermon on the Mount, three chapters of legislation for us. Now, I know what some people mean when they say legalist, but let me say there is no such thing there is no such thing as truth without law and there is no such thing as god without law and we have to come to terms with that he is the final word and he's the holy one and in that final moment he will speak and say he that is done wrong let him continue to do wrong And he who is vile, let him continue to be vile. But he who does right, let him continue to do right. And he who is holy, let him continue to do holy. And with that will be the ultimate division of all humans. Now, the last thing I want to say is, it's a more tender thing. And I'm glad for that. Because when we face the holiness of God, there's something within us that gets a bit awestruck and fearful. But let me tell you about a tender side to this book. I love the fact that uh, when it pictures Jesus, you get a story in the title that nobody should miss. I missed it for a long time. You see, I thought that uh, the book of Revelation would show him as the Lion of the Tribe of Judah. You remember the Tribe of Judah was the one from which he came. And that was one of the titles that Jesus bore. And you will remember that the Lion of the Tribe of Judah was a rampant lion standing on his hind paws with his forepaws raised and his talons out, his claws out, ready to fall on his enemies and destroy them or on his prey. And so the angel, when John said, Who is worthy to open the book that has my future in it? And there was nobody in heaven and nobody in earth and nobody under the earth? The angel said, There is one worthy, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And he turned to see him, and what he saw was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Because, you see, the lion of the tribe of Judah is the lamb of God. Now, what's significant to me is, I read through the book of Revelation and checked it. There are about 30 references to the lamb. There is one reference to the lion of the tribe of Judah. There's no question but that he is the lion. But that's not what he wants to be. And when he comes to that final moment, the one thing he wants more than anything else is to be the sacrifice for your sins and the sacrifice for mine. He'd rather be the lamb than anything else. That's what he came to be. And this final book explains and pictures him preeminently in that role. There's something else in the book that I love. It's the last speech that he makes. Now I don't know a great deal about literature, but one of the things I felt is that if I'd been writing the book of Revelation, the last time I have him speaking, I would have done it with great flourish. I'd have had the trumpets blasting and the angelic host singing. And I had somebody reading out his titulature, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who opens and no man can shut, the one who shuts and no man can open, crying out his titles. But do you know the last speech he makes in the book of Revelation? He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David in the bright morning star. But the last time he speaks in human history, I, Jesus, because that's preeminently who he is. Jesus, the name that charms our fears and bids our sorrows cease, his music in the sinner's ears, his life and health and peace. He's not the one who wants to drive us away. He's not the one who wants to terrify us. He's the one that wants to get our fears out of the way so we can see him in his tender love and in his compassion. And he wants to invite us to himself. Because do you know the next words in the book of Revelation? The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the gift of the water of life. So that the last time God speaks to us in this book, he is saying, will you come? I think I know the posture in which that has to be done, because I don't think he can say, will you come, without extending those arms. And when you see those arms and hands extended, the thing you will find is that in His hands are the wound prints for His sacrifice for you and for me and for our redemption. And it is He, that tender one, who is the sovereign Lord, the breaker of the future, the mystery of the future, the unroller of the future, and the righteous judge. But he is the tender Savior that wants to be that for every one of us. Now, uh, that brings me joy and brings me comfort when I think about tomorrow. I don't know what the devil has, and I don't know what the world has for me. But I know that none of it will be out of his control. And he reigns. He is the one who was, and who is, and who is to come. You know, as I come to the close, I think of an experience the disciples had early in the ministry of Jesus, according to Mark, it's in the fourth chapter. They've listened to him teach, and they say, who is he who has this kind of wisdom? He speaks reality, authenticity. They'd watched him heal the sick. They'd watched him cleanse a leper. They'd watched him restore a paralytic They had watched him as he faced the religious leadership and challenged it. And then he took them in a boat, and they crossed the Sea of Galilee. He crawled in the back and went to sleep. It's interesting, the eternal God, sleep in a storm, isn't it? Because the storm arose. And when the storm arose, those fellows well-seasoned in terms of the Sea of Galilee. They'd been in many a storm on the Sea of Galilee. But the text says that this one was serious enough that they became afraid. Now, they didn't know whether he had anything to do with the weather or not, but they watched him face every other problem that they had confronted, and he had handled it. And so one of them nudged the other and said he took care of everything else. Why don't we see if he can't help us on this one? And one of them went and shook him and waked him up and said, Master, don't you care whether we perish? And I like that. I've seen him handle a lot of things in my life. Enough that uh, I think whatever comes, I'll probably do the same kind of thing that these disciples did. So he took care of those others. Who's going to help me with this? But when they waked him up, he said, Don't you believe yet? And he spoke to the wind, and it stopped. And he spoke to the sea, and it lay down. And they arrived safely at their destination. Now, I don't know what you've got in your future, and I don't know what I've got in mine in terms of what and when. But the magnificent thing is, I can have him in my boat. And he made everything that is. There's not a wind that will blow that's not under his control. There's not a storm that can arise that he is not master of it. There's not a tragedy that can befall us, but that he can bring good out of it. I don't see how anybody in the world would not want him on board. It seems to me the most reasonable cry that could ever come from the human heart would be even so, come, Lord Jesus, come to my heart and go through this thing with me, all of the future. And if we know him, out of all the people in the world, we're the people who ought to be the most confident, and we're the people who ought to be the most joyous. There ought to be a light in your eye that isn't in your pagan neighbor's eye. There ought to be a peace in your face that isn't in your pagan neighbor's face. There ought to be a confidence in you that the world knows nothing about. And the basis of it is, is the one who, he's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, he's the Amen, but he's Jesus, the Savior. If you want to learn more about Titus Women, visit us online at tituswomen.org.